Section 26 of the History of Prostitution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tavarish. The History of Prostitution by William Sanger. Section 26. Chapter 21. Russia. Part 1. The Brutality drunkenness and debauchery which accompany semi-barbarism and of which the old russian manners had more than a due proportion continued to be characteristic of the people of that country until a very recent period while their amiability their plastic disposition their highly imitative faculty in the arts and their capabilities of improvement are noted by many writers just emerged from savage life as a nation they have been moulded and welded as one mass by the steady and undeviating policy of their sovereigns, among whom we have examples of vast mental powers and towering ambition, combined with the lowest depravity and the most shameless profligacy, exemplifying in the same individual the extremes of human nature. Previous to Peter the Great, Russia was comparatively unknown, and in the Elizabethan age of England, the Tsar of Muscovy, was considered only as a barbarian whose subjects were far inferior in civilization to the Tatars of the Crimea. Indeed, it was not till the 18th century that the Russians were admitted within the pale of European politics, or their power reckoned as an element in the calculations of statesmen. The most important, we might almost say the only, lawgiver previous to Peter the Great was Ivan III, who reigned in the early part of the sixteenth century. Among the laws of that period, which were all sanguinary, was one fixing the value of a female life in case of death by misadventure at half the life of a man. Slavery was the institution of the state, each child being the absolute property of its parent. The women were more enslaved than among the Asiatics, no law protecting them against their husband's violence. A wife who killed her husband was to be buried alive up to the neck and a guard was set around her to see that no one supplied her with food or the means of ending her sufferings females lived in the strictest seclusion and had no weight nor authority in the household their duties were to spin to sew and to do menial work peter the first came to the throne as most russian sovereigns have done either through intrigue or usurpation. Both before and after Peter, the will and caprice of the ruling power was paramount. He might appoint his successor either during life or by will, and such appointment was often set aside by a more powerful competitor. In Peter's public life, in his aspirations for the general welfare, in his self-devotion, in his conceptions of all that was wanting in his country's elevation and greatness, and in his iron will and supernatural history he was a hero. In his private life, in his passions, his tastes and habits, he was on a level with the lowest of mankind. Our object is the delineation of national characteristics and individual propensities or delinquencies are important except so far as they illustrate national character. It has been well observed that a people's virtue or vice does not consist in the new arithmetical increase or decrease 
of immoral actions but in the prevailing sentiment of an age or people which condemns or approves them it is in this respect that the conduct of monarchs and courtiers becomes of importance in the estimate of national manners especially in a despotism the czar of russia is at once the religious and political leader of his people and his personal conduct becomes the standard of their moral relations offering encouragement and support to the good or sanction and justification to the depraved peter's first wife eudoxia was a woman of virtue and merit neither her youth nor beauty secured the affections of her husband she did not escape the voice of slander glebov her alleged lover was impaled by peter who went to see him writhing in his death agonies when the wretched man avenged himself in the only way left him he spat in the tsar's face eudoxia was subsequently sent to a nunnery at moscow by peter's orders and at last took the veil under the name of helena scarcely had peter attained the crown when he formed a connection with catherine the romantic history of her origin and elevation is too well known to repeat here her husband a swedish dragoon was living and she was the mistress first of marshal sheremelov then of menshikov in whose house peter saw her and whence he took her she acquired great influence over the tsar's untamed ferocity and to her infinite credit this influence was always used to mitigate the fearful rigor of his punishments and to soothe his otherwise implacably revengeful spirit during the lifetime of her husband and of his first wife peter married her the pleasing traits of catherine's character were obscured by the irregularity of her life raised by the affection of peter to the imperial throne she set an example of dissoluteness to her subjects there is ample reason for believing that she had several intrigues during peter's lifetime but the case of moens de la croix is beyond question and the discovery of her infidelity in this instance led to her separation from peter and the death of her lover in seventeen twenty four after the campaign against the turks in which catherine had accompanied the czar and had by her spirit and example kept up the courage of the army amid great difficulties and reverses peter determined on publicly crowning her a ceremony very unusual in russia and almost tantamount to declaring her his successor moins de la croix was the young brother of anne de la croix one of the peter's early mistresses he was catherine's chamberlain his office brought him in close attendance on the empress and an intimacy was established this was for a time notorious to everyone except peter himself at length however his suspicions were aroused and by setting spies on catherine he became a personal witness to her infidelity the first explosion of his resentment was terrific and he was on the point of executing both the empress and her paramour but by the temperate advice of some of his friends who counseled him to avoid a scandal it was determined to arrest moens on a false charge of conspiracy moens and his sister were accordingly seized and confined in an apartment in the winter palace 
Peter permitted nobody to approach them, and took them their food with his own hands. When they were examined as to the conspiracy, Moens, to save the empress with the public, confessed to everything. He was accordingly condemned and beheaded. His sister was knouted and sent to Siberia. Catherine had presented her lover with her miniature on a bracelet which he always wore. As he walked to his death, he managed to deliver it, unperceived, to the Lutheran minister who accompanied him, with instructions to convey it back to the empress privately, which was accomplished. The Tsar was a spectator of the execution, after which the head of the culprit was fixed on a stake, according to custom. To terrify Catherine the, the more effectually, Peter drove her round the head of her lover. Happily for her, she managed to preserve self-control during the torture of this horrid spectacle. After this, the Tsar only spoke to her in public. At Peter's death, Catherine ascended the throne of Russia by virtue of a pretended dying declaration of her husband. She went through a pantomime of sorrows and tears over his body, but, as soon as she was firmly seated, she abandoned herself to pleasure and voluptuousness, and had two lovers, Prince Sapisha and Löwenwolden, at the same time. These two rivals equally strove to please her, and alternately received proofs of her tenderness without suffering their happiness to be married by jealousy. The irregularity of the Empress's life, and her intemperate use of ardent liquors, hastened her death, which took place in her thirty-ninth year. Peter himself was a wretched example of conjugal infidelity and low debauchery. His associates were often of the very lowest of the populace. It is true that in his time the highest were not much removed from their inferiors in decency of manners, while the inferiors often had the advantage, if not of intellectual cultivation, at least of practical intelligence, in which Peter took delight. He spent many of his hours drinking brandy and other liquors with sailors, carpenters, and artisans, irrespective of his temporary assumption of the working man's pursuits. He consorted indiscriminately with women of all sorts and conditions. Eventually, he contracted the venereal disease. From neglect and the general depravity of his life, the disease became so aggravated that at last it proved the indirect cause of his death. He himself used to say that he had taken it from Madame Nerchikov, wife of the general and diplomatist of that name, upon the fact being mentioned to her, whether casually or with malice prepense, does not appear, she is reported to have replied very naively that she had not given it to him, but that he, on the contrary, had such loose habits and low associates that he had given it to her. It was in 1722 that Peter was attacked with his malady and, while suffering from it, he marched into Persia and shared the fatigues of the meanest soldier throughout the campaign. The heat, drought, and constant dust increased the disease frightfully, and the pains became so excruciating that he could not conceal them from his immediate attendants. Still, however, 
he would not consult the court physician but directed his servant to get advice as if for someone else he then went to the hot baths of plonets and apparently recovered but it seems the disease was not cured it was merely palliated by this treatment and he was obliged on a relapse to have recourse to the regular physicians and for three months his life was despaired of at last he recovered but now in spite of all warnings he resumed his usual habits of life renewed his long and severe journeys his public works and his general activity of mind and body while he in no wise amended other and more injurious pursuits and practices on november fifth seventeen twenty four while on a journey to finland he stopped at the port of lachter there from the shore he saw a small vessel full of soldiers and sailors which had struck upon a shoal perceiving their imminent danger he shouted to them but the boisterous wind drowned his voice he sprang into a skiff pulled out to the shoal and having reached the vessel jumped into the water got her off and landed the passengers all safe he neglected all the precautions necessary in this then state of his health and was seized with violent fever and at the same time his former pangs came on with all their old force he was taken back to st petersburg where he obtained partial relief from his sufferings he employed one of his intervals of ease in celebrating the great festival of blessing the waters of the neva and by his intemperance in the festivities renewed his attack and after a period of protracted agony died on the twenty eighth of january seventeen twenty five peter is described as having been excessively libidinous in temperament and his coarse promiscuous amours were made the common subject of his jocularity even in the presence of catherine he has been addicted to the abominable depravities which are stated by the contemporary writers to have been the common practice of the russians at that time peter at times gave way to fits of lust in which like a furious beast he regarded neither age nor sex unnatural vices were punished in the russian army at this time by an express military regulation and the crime was a standing reproach with the people who were said to have acquired it from the greeks of the lower empire anne the successor of peter and catherine had two publicly avowed lovers dolgoruki and ernest john biron the latter was the better known as his influence and importance during anna's reign were very great dolgoruki had become one of the deputies to announce to anne her succession to the throne which office he accepted with the hope of being able to resume his former intimate relations with his future sovereign when he entered the apartments he found a man in mean apparel seated by the side of the princess he ordered him to withdraw and upon his inattention to the order took him by the arm to turn him out with the empress stopped him this unknown person was biron who became regent of the empire anne was not sunk in the same abyss of profligacy as her successor elizabeth nor in brutality as her ancestor peter she had been brought up in courland 
and had acquired some little refinement of ideas and manners. Gluttony and drunkenness were somewhat less in vogue at her court, but dissipation, ruinous gambling, and boundless extravagance were in full fashion. The whole court became a body of buffoons and jokers, and the most absurd and preposterous fashions of dress, the rudest and most boisterous romps and gambols were generally practiced. As a specimen of court manners, the practical joke played on Prince Galitzin, in which there was as much malice as fun, may be remembered. Having given offence by changing his religion, the prince was compulsorily married to a girl of the lowest birth. A palace was built in his honour, but the material was ice, and all the furniture was composed of the same. The wedding procession, consisting of more than three hundred persons in their national costumes, who had been collected from all the provinces of Russia, passed along the streets. The newly married couple were mounted in a pagoda on the back of an elephant. When the ball was over, the bride and bridegroom were conducted to their nuptial chamber, like the rest of the house, all of ice, and were there installed in an ice bedstead, and guards were posted at the door to prevent them escaping from the room before morning. Anne died in 1740, and, after a short interregnum, Elizabeth, daughter of Peter I, came to the throne. She inherited all her father's vices and sensuality, but none of his great qualities. Before she became empress, Elizabeth had outraged all propriety, had openly carried on an improper intercourse with the sub-officers and soldiers of the guards who had been quartered near her dwelling. The lust and drunkenness in which she wallowed indisposed her from all longings after greatness. But there were others who needed her name, and a conspiracy being formed, she became empress in spite of herself. Her chief paramour at the time was Grunstein, sergeant in the guards, who was elevated to the rank of major-general. The other soldiers and non-commissioned officers who had been the ministers of her lewdness were made officers. These individuals frequented the common public houses, got drunk, made their way into the houses of persons of condition, and committed all sorts of depredations with impunity. When the men who could boast of the empress's favors became intolerable, they were drafted off to the army as officers in regiments on service. Elizabeth is said to have been privately married to Razumovsky, as also to the well-known Chevalier Dion, who visited the court of Russia in the disguise of a woman, and undoubtedly enjoyed Elizabeth's favors, whatever may be the truth about her marriage to him. Elizabeth withdrew herself for whole months from business, and was drunk for days or even weeks consecutively. She had a reputation for humanity, but, although she sentenced no one to death, not less than eighty thousand of her subjects were tortured or sent to Siberia during her reign. Her extravagance was such that when she died there were in her wardrobe some fifteen thousand dresses, thousands of pairs of sleeves, and several hundred pieces of French and other silks.
Catherine II of Russia was, like Peter, a compound of the noblest intellectual endowments with a moral organization of unsurpassed depravity. She has usually been considered a monster of lust, but she was no less infamous for her cruelty and for the total absence of all those qualities and feelings which form the chief grace and beauty of woman's inner life. Her favorite dining-room in the Tauric Palace was adorned with pictures representing the sacking of Ochakov and Ismail, in which the painter had surpassed the gloomy vision of Caravaggio and had depicted the assault, the carnage, the mutilation, and all the hideous details of such scenes. In these Catherine is said to have taken great delight. She hated music and never could permit other sounds than those of drums, trumpets, and similar barbaric instruments within her hearing, and yet it is said that in her outset in life as princess of Anhalt Zerbst, she had a womanly heart, delicacy of taste, and refinement of intellect, that it was not till long after her husband Peter the Third had insulted her by open neglect of her very winning person and youthful graces, and had abandoned her for the vulgar and ugly Princess Voronsov, that she permitted herself to the terrible career which she afterward pursued so steadily. The Duchess de Brandt, in her memoir of Catherine, tells us that her first lover, Soltikov, was forced upon her as a matter of public policy by the crafty and unscrupulous Bestuzhev, the able minister of Elizabeth, for the sake of procuring an heir to the Grand Duke Peter. Catherine remonstrated and threatened to complain. "'To whom will you complain?' asked the minister coldly. Catherine submitted and accepted the lover thus imposed upon her. At the time of this adultery for expediency's sake, Catherine was deeply intent upon study with a view to qualify herself worthily for her future destiny, disgusted as she was with the indecencies of the Russian court. Subsequently, it was considered expedient to remove Soltikov. Catherine had given birth to a child, and was not pleased with this dismissal. But the impassable Bestuzhev only sneered at her remonstrances and professions of affection for her dismissed lover, and recommended her to choose another. This was a lesson she was not slow to carry out. The list of her paramours was little less numerous than that of Elizabeth. End of section 26